Welcome to Unexpecting, a podcast brought to you by Hannah, the leading fertility support organization for Jewish people in the UK. I'm Dr. Romy Shulman, the clinical lead at Hannah. And I'm Shimon Schwab, a psychotherapist at Hannah. Over the course of this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, couples, and religious leaders about the multi-layered challenges people face on their fertility journey. We offer practical, emotional, and financial support to those couples on the sometimes complex paths towards parenthood. Head over to hana.org.uk for more information. My name is Caroline Cohen. I'm the Principal Social Worker and Honorary Executive Director at Hana. I'm one of the psychotherapists of a team of 19 psychotherapists. And we have a medical panel, two of whom are on this webinar, of 23 experts in the fields of fertility, gynecology, and genetics. To ensure we give our couples relevant support, we try to stay up to date with the latest technology and innovations. With that in mind, we are delighted tonight to have partnered with UK Israel Tech Hub. I'd like to introduce you to Eleanor Honigstein. Eleanor is the head of the UK office and the strategic partnerships at UK Israel Tech Hub. Eleanor, handing over to you. Thank you very much, Caroline. Uh, so really great to be here and thank you for putting this uh, important event together. So as Caroline mentioned, uh, I work at the UK Israel Tech Hub. To those of you who don't know us, we are a British government uh, team. We're based between London and Tel Aviv and we connect Israeli innovation to the UK market, to corporates, investors and the, and the public sector. And actually on our agenda, high on our agenda is health tech and specifically women health innovation. My team is working very closely with the NHS to help them to tap into innovation that's coming from Israel. And specifically on women's health, we actually held a summit to drive um, investment into that field of women's health innovation. So this is very much on the professional side. Now, on the personal side, I, uh, I want to say that I came across Hana 16 years ago uh, when I was looking for support myself. And I remember the comfort uh, that I felt in knowing that there was a team who really could look out for me and, and guide me through this journey. So I feel very, very grateful and privileged, actually, to, to be involved and kind of to give back, even if a little bit today. Um, so today we're going to explore the innovation and technology solutions that are transforming the fertility landscape to really understand what's available out there. How can we as consumers access and benefit from these solutions? So thank you also to those who submitted uh, your questions in advance. We certainly incorporated them into the discussion. And if you have any other questions, please submit them via the, the chat box or the Q&A box, and we'll try and address them towards the end. So I'm delighted, delighted to welcome our fantastic panelists today. Uh, with me here today are Veronique, is Veronique Berman, Scientific Advisor and Community Development Manager at Hana. Dr. Natalie Getroy, an ovarian biologist and researcher, as well as the COO and co-founder of Fertility Health, and Dr. Benjamin Abramov, fertility specialist with a wealth of experience in the field and over 20 years experience in gynecology. Really great to have you and thank you so much for giving us your time tonight. Um, so let's start with a quick round of introductions. Uh, Natalie, why don't we start with you? So uh, I'm officially an ovarian biologist by training, and I spent the first half of my career in academia, where a lot of my research was focused on fertility preservation, 
more specifically on ovarian tissue freezing and transplantation, which is an innovative fertility preservation option for women and girls undergoing cancer treatment. I then transitioned away from academia and into the startup world where I co-founded Fertility Health. Um, we founded Fertility Health so that we can help women make informed decisions when it matters most. We offer tailored hormone testing and treatment options for reproductive health and fertility so that women can get insights into their hormones and fertility um, and make fertility much more proactive rather than a reactive space. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Benny? I'm um, Benny Abramov, Benjamin Abramov. I uh, trained, um, I finished my um, MD in uh, Israel in uh, the University of uh, Ben-Gurion in Beersheba. Uh, trained in uh, a fantastic hospital called Sharet Tzedek in Jerusalem, where I also received training in fertility and IVF. Um, moved to the UK after finishing my um, six years of training there. Uh, and uh, since 2006, has have been involved in uh, fertility medicine and assisted reproduction, both in the NHS and uh, more so in the private sector. Thank you so much, uh, Veronique. Thank you so much, Eleanor. Good evening. My background is uh, not so dis- different to Natalie in that I started out in academia, um, started as a biochemist and then um, went into molecular endocrinology, looking at uh, genetics and arrested and delayed puberty and fertility. And uh, after 15 years in the health service and in academia, I really had the privilege to take some of my skill set into HANA and uh, to work closely with the medical panel members, which Benny is one, and other scientists, which is how Natalie and I met, um, and really a privilege to be able to bring science and technology and medicine and working closely with the team of therapists and really supporting them to do the work that they do with the couples that come to Hana. Great, great to have you all. Um, so Betty, why don't we start with you? I mean, we, we see that um, in recent years, advances in technology, anything from hardware to uh, diagnostics to community-driven mobile apps and tracking apps that are meant to really help improve the efficiency and reduce the cost of fertility uh, treatment, they're, they're all kind of coming up and there's a lot. Now, as a leading fertility specialist, can you share how IVF has evolved during recent years thanks to the adoption of technology? It, it, is, it will be true to say that uh, we have not seen a major leap in what we do uh, since the introduction of ICSI about three, de- three decades ago and since uh, the use of embryo uh, biopsy for the purpose of pre-implantation genetic um, diagnosis of, of uh, genetic mutations and also uh, a bit more controversial for pre-genetic um, screening of the embryos. Uh, also um, developed and had its uh, first uh, cases about three, three uh, decades ago. And nothing of that magnitude has happened, but uh, nevertheless, the, the field has evolved uh, considerably since. Uh, and what we have now is fine-tuning that meant that success rates are, are better uh, and that uh, what's more important, the success rates are more uniform. Uh, by accessing technologies that improved conditions in the lab, uh, improved um, the way we handle gametes, improved the way we handle embryos and so forth, uh, we managed to uh, get uh, um, fantastic success rates, in my opinion, across the board. We have moved from transferring uh, two, sometimes three, or even more embryos to improve our chances of success, 
to um, using single embryo transfers because we are now so much more confident in our ability uh, to gain success even with a transfer of one embryo. And that has reduced the morbidity uh, involved with uh, fertility treatment, and mostly what, what I'm referring, referring to is premature uh, delivery of uh, babies in um, twin and triplet pregnancies. The other thing that has evolved considerably in the, in the last decade or so is our ability to preserve women's fertility. This happened because, firstly, we have now more awareness to the issue. Uh, we also realized that cancer treatment is effective, and the second uh, thing we need to now think about after we assist uh, women um, overcoming certain cancers is that their the fertility is secured. And our ability to, to do so has improved thanks to the development of egg vitrification. We um, started freezing eggs using a different technology since uh, uh, 2006, 2008, uh, with results that are superior to what we had been experiencing before with the old uh, slow freezing technique. And we have also managed to get uh, success with uh, ovarian cortex cryopreservation that is normally used in younger women who we, who we do not want to subject to a cycle of uh, ovulation, ovarian stimulation and egg, egg collection. Thank you for that. And, and in terms of what can we as consumers find in the in the pharmacies, in hospitals that can help us with the journey? Anything that we can use? So, so uh, it's a very broad question, and I think we can probably spend the whole night uh, discussing it. But w- the two points that I would like to make about this are that, firstly, I think that we need to uh, start raising the awareness that the fertility field has a role in our life that starts before we even want to have a family. And that's a very, very important point. We do not have a screening system in place uh, for um, young men and young women uh, to see who is in a, at a risk of um, um, fertility decline. Obviously, someone who is going to have cancer treatment is at that risk. And then nowadays, we have quite robust pathways to make sure that they, they access treatment uh, in, a, in, in a timely fashion. Uh, we have also have... I think raise the awareness uh, of uh, fertility decline in women uh, from the mid-30s onwards. And we have uh, women seeking fertility preservation if they are single and they're worried about their ability to have a child if they only are able to start the family in the late 30s and in the the 40s. But I believe that uh, we can do more in women. And I believe that in men, the field is completely, it's a desert. Uh, I believe that men are not aware of uh, the fact that they do also have a ticking clock. Uh, And I believe that many of the men that I see in my clinic who uh, come to us with a condition called azospermia, lack of sperm in their ejaculate, could have possibly been traced a bit earlier in the day when there was some sperm in the ejaculate and we could have frozen it for them uh, for future use. Uh, The idea of uh, having a very low threshold to uh, test men, uh, offering them a simple semen analysis, which has a fantastic correlation with the chances of fathering a child, is something that we need to uh, consider. I do not think that it will become a, a, a public health policy 
because I think that our public health system is at least currently now busy with other affairs. And I'm also not saying that I can say in confidence that it has uh, the cost effectiveness that it should have to become a public health policy. But I think that on an individual basis, young men and young women will benefit from some sort of a screening at some point early in their life so that they can make the right choices. Thank you very much. So you've mentioned really important things. So uh, among other things, the, the starting early and raising the awareness among men and women and really screening early, which really leads me to, to Natalie and the question that I wanted to ask you. I'd love to know what technology is out there that enables women to be more proactive and maybe provide personalized insights to their general health uh, and the impact it has on their uh, reproductive biology. A really important point is that I don't think that reproductive health and, and women's health in general should be treated as separately. I think they're intertwined. And if something is out of sync in a woman's reproductive health, and it often has an impact on her overall health in general. And I think today we are living in an age where there's a lot out there. There are apps that you can use to track, you know, your menstrual cycle symptoms and your, even just, you know, the menstrual cycle, and whether it's regular or not. Um, you can also track your mood, which also has a big impact on, on your general well-being and health. There are also hardware and wearables out there which are tracking physiological signals, which are also often an indicator into what's going on inside a, a woman's body. And then you enter this diagnostic field where there are now, you know, at-home blood tests and DNA testing kits, which are collecting biometric information. And all of these technologies are aggregating data and providing personalized insights into an individual's cycle health, overall health, giving insights, you know, in the women's health field into like the ovulatory window and fertile window. Um, and I think that, that you know, there's, there's a lot out there. It's just about finding the right tool that works for the individual. Um, fantastic. So it's exactly my, my question to Veronique now, because um, as Hannah's chair of medical advisory panel and its head of community development, you are at the forefront of new medical advancement offered by clinics uh, and you're able to really pass on this knowledge uh, to the community. Perhaps you can share how Hana helps to guide couples through all the latest fertility innovation. How, how do you help patients to decide which route to, to take? Thank you. Yes, well, I spend a lot of my time networking. I make it a priority to meet with clinics, with clinicians, uh, with the national charity, the Fertility Network UK, who I actually met with this morning. I meet with them regularly. Um, I also have a lot of interaction with patient groups involved in education, like the Progress Educational Trust, and of course, the HFEA, the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, which is the regulator of the sector. All of these people make it their business as well as my business to keep up with the technology and the innovation. And so I'm involved with different forums as well and clinical commissioning groups um, that give fertility patients the voice as well. So in short, yes, as you quite rightly say, what I'm doing is keeping my ear to the ground. And the objective is to hear and to see what is out there, because we know that when people come to Hana, whether it's through the telephone helpline or whether it's uh, through a personal referral, in many cases, they already have quite a lot of knowledge. Some of them may be starting their journey, but more will have already embarked on their journey and will have been around a little bit and have a lot of personal knowledge. And so what they really need to feel is that they are innovating for themselves and that they are taking charge of their situation and they are in control as much as they can be because 
Part of this process, unfortunately, is they are handing over control of such an intimate process, which would normally be the most private part of their lives, and they're handing that technicians and technicians, which is something that obviously is very, very difficult for them. So in order for them to move forward, very often they feel that they need to be doing something different. They need to be at the cutting edge. They need to know exactly what's going on. So my role, both within the medical panel and with um, within the team, is to make sure that I bring that information in and then I meet with the team. As Caroline mentioned, there are 19 members of the team. Uh, meet with them on a monthly basis to share with them what I've learned and they share with me as well what they've learned from their uh, patients and Dr. Shulman, our clinical lead, will be fully up to date so that when people are coming into our service, they're being able to receive a bespoke package of care, which is tailored specifically to them, specifically to their individual requirements. There isn't a one size fits all. We don't align ourselves with any one clinic or any one clinician. Impartiality is extremely important in the same way that the confidentiality of every single person that comes into our organization is paramount. We recognize that each couple or each individual needs something different. And that's really what we are striving to do is to share our knowledge with them and to bring them the most up-to-date technology to help them to access. So important, the two-way learning between also uh, clinicians and the the families that want to uh, conceive and also the bespoke uh, solutions that you're offering. And specifically on genetic uh, testing, um, in identifying kind of potential genetic disorders, Is there a way that technology can shorten the lengthy wait that people have before a diagnosis is made? The process of making a a genetic diagnosis is something that is a very involved process. And I think, you know, certainly from having had 15 years experience myself of working in molecular diagnostics services, I absolutely recognize that it is there is a lot of automation involved in this process already. And, you know, we have a lot of technology at our fingertips already. Unfortunately, it is a process that involves numerous steps. Everything has to be checked and rechecked because of the magnitude of the steps that are being taken and the information that is being gathered. There has to be a human element. You can't remove the human element and and purely make it um, a process that is uh, fully automated. And with that then comes the increase in the length of the time that it takes. Very often people are going to be referred to large regional genetic centers because the type of um, technology that's involved in doing this work is not available in every local hospital. It's certainly not going to be available in every private hospital. There are certain centers that need to rely with sending their material to the USA or to other countries because of the high level of specialty. So with that then comes the time it takes to report, the time it takes to check and cross-check. So unfortunately, there's the human element that sometimes slows this process down. And obviously that is frustrating. And that's where our support team will be there to offer the emotional support to the couples while they're waiting for these diagnoses and waiting to gain an understanding of what's going on for them. Great. And we'll talk about the emotional support a bit later on. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, Benny, we spoke about some of the innovation out there, but I really like to address the issue of accessibility. And you mentioned uh, a little bit uh, kind of public uh, policy uh, before. If new innovations are introduced into the health system, what are the criteria for them to be adopted into the NHS? How can you know, patients access them? 
So the NHS uh, would wish to have some some sort of evidence or evidence of some sort of strength uh, to back the use of uh, novel uh, approaches in in fertility and generally speaking in medicine. And and I believe that this this is a a right thing to to do in in the NHS. Uh, They're using public money and they need to make sure that any intervention that they are going to incorporate is going to be effective and is going to be safe. Um, the type of evidence that you uh, need to uh, show uh, under such circumstances comes from large randomized controlled trials or from meta-analysis or from reviews that um, gather the information from smaller studies, uh, put them together and run an analysis and say if a certain intervention is beneficial or not. The issue is that this is not the way that medicine, generally speaking, but I think specifically fertility medicine, has developed. IVF itself, had it uh, needed to meet those criteria, had we now attempted to develop IVF in the year of 2021, an ethics committee would have stopped Edwards and Steptoe from continuing with with their experiment because there was no data about safety. There was only data from animal model. And because there were a few hundred attempts that failed to result in the birth of a healthy offspring until, uh, the, uh, uh, until the first successful, uh, successful cycle. Um, ICSI itself, one of the major leaps in our, in our uh, field, uh, has also not developed through uh, some sort of uh, study, a well-organized, uh, well-structured study. It was, uh, at least allegedly, um, a fluke. Uh, someone uh, was trying to uh, insert sperm under the cytoplasm and mistakenly went into the cell and, 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 and caused the first ICSI, ICSI uh, case. And then we just carried on doing so without having any proof of the safety uh, with having little proof of its uh, effectiveness uh, until the data was gathered. So I believe that many other interventions will follow the same pathway. They will not be adopted first by the public sector. The private sector will probably embark on certain approaches and the data will be collected as we go. There is a regulatory issue with this. Uh, for instance, if I now take one of the hot topics in our field, uh, PGTA, pre-implantation genetic uh, screening of embryos. Uh, This is now considered by our regulatory uh, body as an intervention with no proven effectiveness or no proven benefit. Uh, When I believe that the data to to suggest that is 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 incomplete. I believe that rather in cases when you think that an intervention is is, is dangerous. I believe that in many other circumstances, what we need to do, what our regulatory bodies need to do, is to make sure that they are practiced in a way that involves reporting. If all these innovations occur and are reported to a regulatory body, then there's centralized data uh, that we can then use. People use something called intralipid infusion which we think that it is a manipulation of the 
uh, immune system, which can help couples or women to conceive. Uh, it's been practiced for at least a decade now. There's almost nothing scientifically to suggest that it works. Had we asked 10 years ago clinics to report on any patient that receives an off-label drug, because this uh, reintrolipid was not invented for IVF, that we asked them to report on every cycle that they use intralipid, we might have now been able to say, this does not work, stop using it. Or, you know something, that might work. Yeah, I can, I can certainly see how reporting and kind of data collection and, and analysis is key to this. Um, thank you for that. Um, Natalie, infertility remains, unfortunately, a topic that's really not talked about openly. And people delay or avoid seeking help, but we do need to engage people in conversations about their fertility at a much uh, younger stage. What can we do to normalize conversations that typically happen in, you know, in the private homes about these topics? Does technology help in any way? So I think, um, you know, this is something we, we deal with at Hertility a lot. You know, we've built this product that we think is, is good, um, that every woman would benefit from. But actually, our first job is to educate every woman why she needs the product and why she should t- even take an interest in her fertility. And I think one of the, the main ways that innovation has helped is through um, the creative ways you can now access content. So, um, you know, by, by sort of putting content out there in different ways that is accessible to everyone of all ages means that everyone can now sort of find out information in a bite-sized and accessible way, which I think is really important. Um, and the second thing, and I think this is something that COVID um, actually is a positive outcome of COVID, is that medicine is now being practiced a little bit at home. You, so you can have a teleconsultation at home, you can log on and, and sort of have a discussion at home, and home is a much safer environment then let's say going into a clinic, which feels a little bit sterile, it's, it's a bit more traditional. And especially for, for the younger, like some of our younger patients, I think being able to bring that at home means that it's then something that you might bring up a little bit more readily because it's not just something that you discussed in a clinic in a patient's office. So I think those, those two for us are, are things that we're finding are helping bring the conversation um, out and, and, and allow some sort of making it a bit less taboo. Great. And we, we talked about the many, many technologies that we see out there. Um, and certainly, you know, it attracts investors to inject more and more capital. Um, but I'd love to know from your perspective, what else is missing aside from capital to really accelerate innovation in this space and make it more uh, accessible to those who need it? So um, I think the capital is great, but I also think that female representation in, in other spaces, because um, we're the ones, you know, especially with female infertility, we're the ones that are experiencing it. And sort of, you know, female representation, you know, at high profile conferences in the media, you know, that, that creates a larger footprint in research collaborations. Um, also, you know, women getting into tech, heading companies and investing themselves makes, you know, this something that, that becomes at the forefront of, you know, investors and uh, tech companies attention. So I think it's about having representation in some of these places, which are traditionally slightly more male dominated. Couldn't agree more. Thank you for that. Um, and Veronique, Veronique, you mentioned before uh, the emotional support uh, that you give to, um, to your patients. I'd love to hear more about the services that, uh, that you provide to support the well-being of uh, our families. Of course. It, it's always a pleasure to share what we do at Hana. I'm very, very proud and at the same time very humbled to work with an amazing team. 
we focus really on supporting the couples in the way that they need. As I said, you know, the bespoke uh, package of care is extremely important. Each couple or person who contacts us will receive this. Their initial encounter could be on the phone or it could be with a member of the Hana team. And then they would come in. I mean, unfortunately, at the moment, they're not physically coming in, but please God, soon they will. And really, their first encounter will be with uh, Dr. Shulman, who's our clinical manager, and she will share with them the different services that we offer, how we can offer the emotional support, the different members of the team who are all very well versed in aspects of fertility, but they also have emphases in their training, whether it's um, in bereavement or loss, or whether it's psychosexual health, they have different emphases in their training. And so once Dr. Shulman has been able to ascertain the, the history of the couple and, and what it is that they need, whether they need to access uh, the medical advisory panel, which, as I mentioned before, is a team of very generous medics um, who give so much of their time. And they work with us to help us both with males and females alike. It, it's, it's very much something that we're strongly aware of the fact that whether it's male factor or female factor, or in some cases, even unexplained infertility, this is a, a team effort. And therefore, um, you know, you have different members of the couple who will deal with the situations differently and they will give them information. The panel will very generously review cases on behalf of the couples, uh, which is a unique experience because even if a couple go to a clinic and they choose then to change and go to another and have a second opinion, they won't have necessarily a multidisciplinary team approach that they would have when they come to Hana. The other thing that we are also able to offer is halachic Jewish law information. We know that for many, there are really big decisions that they're having to make. These are not uh, everyday situations that they're finding themselves in. And there are often big decisions that they have to make if they're um, either embarking on treatments or using donor gametes. And therefore, very often, they would like to have some um, conversation either with their rabbi or in some cases, absolutely not with their rabbi because that's too close to home. And these are subjects that are too difficult to share with someone you know. So we have a rabbinic panel who are able to uh, give information and support um, on that level, on the Jewish law level. And then there is also the financial support that we are able to offer. Unfortunately, the NHS provision is quite variable depending on where people live, depending on on what they've experienced. Um, and often that gets used up quite fast. And then the patients become not only patients, but also consumers because they then have a lot of choice and it can feel really overwhelming and bewildering for them to navigate their way through that choice. And so we, we try to help them with those choices. And if I could just pick up actually on, on a theme that you mentioned before, where Benny was saying about the fact that, you know, there are so many choices that the couples have and no robust research behind it. Everything is regulated very, very tightly regulated by the authority and they work very hard to um, have a system whereby people can find out about add-ons and we work closely with them. But no one is going to volunteer themselves to go into a blind randomized trial. And that's really, I think, a limitation. And uh, we are very much aware of that. And so we try and our medical panel really help us to understand what technologies may be open to couples that they may not yet have explored or that they want to explore. And is it appropriate, even if they're told that this is an innovation that is not connected necessarily to, to the fertility sector? And, and as to your question of what we offer, 
events like this and educational programs are such an important part of what we hope to provide to people because we hope that we are a trusted voice and a trusted source. And very often that's what people need. They could access a lot of information themselves, but they need help to navigate it. And we hope that that's what we're able to provide as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Veronique. We have a question there from the audience. I'm going to read it out. There are lots of novel technologies with differing amounts of supporting evidence. How are consumers or patients expected to know what fertility add-ons provide a true benefit? Whoever wants to take this uh, question. <laughs> do, you want to, do you want me to start, Benny, and you help me out here? I, I think it's it's a very, very good question. And, and Benny has already really alluded to some of the answer because, you know, everything that's happened in IVF was all, um, listen, I won't say a fluke because nothing is a fluke. And we're, we're very humbled and grateful that, you know, that these technologies are available to couples where they weren't 40 years ago. And, and there have been innovations along the way. And we hope that there will be more. And yes, it's very, very bewildering because, For some, they are just desperate and will try anything. And you are looking at quite a vulnerable cohort, people who will really do absolutely anything they can to have a child. And it's very difficult uh, to make sense of it. The regulator works very hard with their traffic light system. So they classify whether something has full research behind it or whether it has no research whatsoever and no proven evidence. As you say, Benny, the, the data is needed to prove. And, and that's one of the things that we try very hard to do is to collect data from our HANA patients and to take that information back and discuss it with the panel. I, I remember about 12 years ago talking about DNA fragmentation, which is a test that is performed on sperm. And it's something that captivated my interest. And I took it to the medical panel and we had a long discussion about it. And with their support, We made this available to HANA clients in spite of the fact that it's not something that was necessarily recommended, but the information made sense. And I think that until you collect data and can analyze that data and then discuss it with people who really have an understanding, it's difficult to move forward. And we hope that that's one of the things that we're able to help couples with is the information from the panelists as well as the regulators. Benny, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. And I'll add one, one uh, sort of one thought that I had while you were speaking. Some of this, those, um, those uh, innovations, or you, you, you would like, if you call them add-ons, it's, it's a term that I, I have to say I detest, but, uh, but uh, they are called add-ons by everyone. And may be suitable for some patients and completely ir- irrelevant to others. And I think that one of the, deficiencies we very often have in this uh, conversation is that we we refer to the couples with fertility challenges as if they were made for one sort of uh, kind and, and were made with with a mold the use of pgta is the discussion is different in a woman who's 42 years old and produces seven blastocysts seven day five embryos and uh, and a woman who is 31 year old and has two blastocysts. These are two different, different scenarios. And you can't really and truly give both cases the same kind of verdict. What I believe in is that we, many of our uh, couples, the vast majority of our couples, 
of intelligent, sometimes really well-read. They come to the consultation very often with knowledge that is better than what my colleagues who are in gynecology but not in the field of fertility medicine have. I say that I'm not exaggerating. And I believe that having a joint decision-making process is, is useful under such circumstances. You have to discuss it in full honesty. Tell the patient what type of data is there and make them make the decision. It's tough because you're actually putting it back in, the, in their, in their um, uh, field. Uh, but I believe that there's no other way of doing this. Thank you. Very uh, comprehensive answers. Thank you for that. Um, there was a question about endometriosis, uh, the pain around it, and if it will ever be solved. Um, anyone wants to take this uh, question? I'll, I'll try. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> so endometriosis has got, um, uh, can cause two major difficulties. One is the pain that it, it, it uh, causes and the, the effect it has on one's uh, quality of life. And it can be devastating. Some women are literally crippled by it. The other challenge that it can cause is, to, is, is difficulty conceiving. However, it has to be said that there are women who have endometriosis and have no symptoms. And there are women who have endometriosis and have no difficulty conceiving. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an enigmatic field in, 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 in gynecology. I don't know if it will be ever solved. I believe it will because we, are, we have more and more understanding of the molecular basis of it. And I think there will be the science to perhaps... Uh, um, offer patients uh, um, an, an intervention that is more intelligent than what, what we have at the moment. But my rule is that if someone has endometriosis that causes pain and she wants to get pregnant, then she needs to consider having surgical treatment to treat the endometriosis because there's a good um, indication that it helps with the pain uh, and then she can embark on fertility treatment. If one has endometriosis, but it doesn't have an impact on her uh, quality of life, I would not suggest uh, surgery as the first line of treatment because there's no evidence to suggest that it actually uh, helps significantly. IVF seems to be a much better, a better intervention, a more effective intervention. And Sometimes surgical treatment of uh, endometriosis can cause a drop in uh, ovarian reserve and then hamper the chances of conception with IVF. So I would always rather do IVF unless the patient is symptomatic. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you taking the, the answer. Um, another question from the audience, uh, also quite specific. What technological advancement is there to assist with recurrent miscarriage? That's a difficult one, isn't it, Benny? It's a difficult one, but it is also a, a, um, an area in which there is a considerable uh, progress. Many of the, many of, uh, the miscarriages that uh, women and couples experience are due to the fact that there is probably nothing wrong with the woman carrying the pregnancy. The embryo has got a fault. The embryo has an abnormal makeup of uh, its chromosomes. And then nature takes its uh, course, and these pregnancies do not go beyond a certain, a certain stage. 
most of these miscarriages, uh, most of these uh, um, chromosomal abnormalities occur randomly by chance, but they are age-related. So the older the female partner is, the more likely she is to have uh, a miscarriage due to chromosomal abnormalities. Apparently, men age contribute to that too, to an extent. And this is something that I, I don't think that the public is fully aware of. And I go back to, my, to the statement I made earlier about the biological clock in men, which is ticking too. However, some couples have recurrent miscarriages because the chromosomal abnormality occurs in them because of something that one of them carries. Now, you can check for that with a karyotype. A karyotype is not a new technology. It's been there for decades. The issue with it is that there is more and more evidence to suggest that what you see with a, with a simple karyotype is possibly not enough. The resolution is not good enough. And if you carry out tests on the chromosomes with new technology, actually, in about a third of the couples who you would tag as unexplained recurrent miscarriages, you would find that they have a chromosomal condition that is transferred to their, to their embryos, and this is the reason they, are, they miscarry. So I believe that one of the ways we will be able to intervene in the future with such cases is by offering those couples a test that is a bit more detailed and an intervention to exclude those embryos uh, from being transferred into the uterus and uh, using embryos that do not have that abnormality. Other innovations in that field are in the molecular basis of implantation. And uh, I believe that there's also quite a bit of uh, achievement made in the in understanding what exactly on the molecular basis happens in the uterus when uh, implantation is successful and when uh, implantation doesn't occur or there's implantation, but it ends up with an early miscarriage. Monique, you wanted to add anything? I, I did. Thank you, Benny. I think that there's really two things I wanted to add. One is that Natalie alluded to this earlier on, that educating young men and young women about how to conceive. We, we learn in school and as youngsters everything that we need to know about how not to make babies. And we don't teach our youngsters actually how important their fertility fitness and their fertility health and choices that they make as young adults can impact on their fertility in the longer term. And there are lots of situations, especially where recurrent miscarriage is concerned, that Either there are certain lifestyle choices that people make that can impact on their fertility health. And we do see that sometimes in the recurrent miscarriage cases. And I think that that's a piece of education, not just um, about what can be done um, in the unfortunate situation, but earlier on. The other thing which really ties in which, with something that Benny has said, that there is a lot of innovation now in preconception screening, in genetic screening for young adults 
before they're thinking about conceiving. So, of course, within our community, this is something that we are more and more aware of. And we we do talk to our couples about whether or not they've had screening for particular traits within that are known to be within uh, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi communities. There are organizations who do a tremendous job um, with this screening. But also there are some that will do other forms of genetic screening, preconception screening, um, to have a better understanding of their genetic health. And especially because this technology is now available. I mean, it's not something that we say, you know, everybody should go and do. But I think for some, there is really a place for this. So I think it's, you know, an approach that we need to be more upfront about in the education and the messaging. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, And Natalie, a question for you. Um, What is in the pipeline regarding new technology that is only in the beta stage, as in uh, a second phase of of testing the software, really? I think um, what's really coming toward us is the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to sort of help us make decisions. Um, We've already seen this in um, sort of being used, I think, preliminarily uh, with embryo selection, uh, to sort of take out the sort of manual and, and human subjectiveness uh, that currently exists. And I think it's only going to permeate throughout the industry. And I think this it ties into all the data we're aggregating, sort of, you know, as we have these apps and wearables and all sorts of things, the more data we're aggregating, the more robust these algorithms can become and, and the more they can help us sort of improve the outcomes of, of fertility and IVF outcomes. And another question uh, from the from the audience uh, on miscarriage again. What are the panel's thoughts with regards to a DNC versus MVA for removal of miscarriages? And does it matter who and where the procedure is being done? I'll answer this in a moment. But if I can ask you, Veronique, from your experience, what is what is the route that the majority of women that you that came to ask your advice? What was was the majority? of them, uh, what kind of a route they, they took? A lot has changed in the last two years. And and part of that is due to the difficulty in accessing um, services because of COVID, because women have had to go to the hospitals alone. They haven't been able to have their partners by their side. Whereas previously, women were more willing and desiring more to have surgical intervention. Over the last two years, that has changed dramatically. The the fear of going through such a thing alone has really changed the way this is managed, to be honest. So so many of them would opt for conservative management? Conservative management, absolutely. More so than before. Definitely more so than before. Being a fertility specialist, my inclination is always to try and be conservative uh, and not opt for surgical intervention because surgical intervention has a small, and it's a very small uh, risk involved with it. Um, and the risk is that uh, the, the procedure may damage uh, the lining of the uterus and the recovery uh, under, under such circumstances is, is really complex. Um, but this refers obviously to very young pregnancies, pregnancies b- before the 10th the week of gestation. And normally with conservative uh, management, either expectant management or medical management, um, 80% of cases will not need any other uh, intervention uh, and uh, things will go back to normal. Um, I don't know whether it needs to be in centers of excellence or any other place or whatever, but there, but there are two things that I feel are important and I know that what I'm going to say now will attract perhaps a lot of criticism from my colleagues, especially in the NHS. 
The first thing is that I believe that the follow-up of this patient is important because a diagnosis of retained products of conception, a diagnosis that a procedure has not expectant management or a procedure uh, has not managed to completely take care of the problem and actually some pregnancy tissue is still left behind. If this diagnosis is missed, then patients have difficulty conceiving. Within our religion, women have issues with their midah and with being able to um, to have to, to you know, have a, a reasonable lifestyle, etc., etc. Uh, so the follow up, in my opinion, is missing. The second thing that I feel that it's time that we consider is that when procedures occur, in any case in which there is tissue. My suggestion is that this tissue is sent for cytogenetic analysis. That solves so many problems in the future. If you have someone who, has, who is 25 years old and has two consecutive miscarriages and you check the products of conception and both cases show you that this, is, this embryo or this fetus had a normal complement of, of chromosomes, then all the red lights are on and you need to start thinking what causes a 25-year-old woman to lose her pregnancies early uh, in the first trimester. And it works the other way uh, around too. Once you have an abnormality detected by this test, you can, tell, uh, you can give the patients uh, a piece of information that is actually comforting. You know, it is sad that it happened to you, but it was meant to happen because this embryo, this fetus, had not what it, it did not have what it takes to become a successful pregnancy and a healthy child. And we don't, do not have this service in the NHS, and I think that it's worth the investment uh, that uh, it involves. Thank you very, very much. Um, and with that, I, I really just want to close the discussion uh, for today and to say that we can clearly see that the, um, the landscape, the fertility landscape is undergoing tremendous uh, transformation. And I really hope that this means that a lot more people are able to access the, the vital support that they need quickly and effectively. And also thanks to organizations such as Hana that you're doing uh, really of such valuable, valuable work. Um, and thank you to our panelists to join us tonight. Uh, really appreciate all your insights and to, your, to the audience as well. And thank you to Anat, Veronique and the Hana team for putting this important event together. Have a lovely evening. Thank you for listening to Unexpecting, brought to you by Hana. If you are struggling on your fertility journey, head over to hana.org.uk and get in touch with one of our experts or call the helpline on 0208 2015774. With Hana, you are not alone. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate, review, and share on social media. We really hope you'll join us again soon.